Welcome to Colorado State University's podcast, The Audit, where host Stacy Nick talks with CSU faculty about topics ranging from their latest research to current events. Consumers today can get just about whatever they want, whenever they want. Since the COVID-19 pandemic began in 2020, same-day, next-day delivery, something that was previously considered more of a premium service, is a normal and even expected way to shop. But what does our get-it-now method of online commerce mean for the supply chain, especially one that has been so precarious in the post-pandemic era? Zach Rogers is an associate professor of operations and supply chain management at Colorado State University's College of Business. Today, we're speaking with Rogers about how this model of shipping became so ubiquitous and the impact it's having on the supply chain and commerce in general. Hi, Zach. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. As we're heading into the 2023 holiday shopping season, a lot of that money is going to be spent online, and a lot of that will be spent at sites like Amazon, where you can often get your purchase at your door within 48 hours. I want to start by having you explain how fast delivery works. How are we able to to push a button and presto, there's a delivery box at the door. It, it's not magic, but it, it feels a little bit like magic. <laughs> it's it's not magic. It's uh, it's just sophisticated science. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. Um, you know, my actually background was as an operations manager at Amazon before I came back to school. And we were sort of in the early days. This would have been 2010, 11, and 12, the early days of figuring this out. And there's a few big things that make this possible. The first is where you put distribution centers and fulfillment centers. So the warehouses where your goods come out of has really changed. You know, the the fulfillment center I was in is one of the earliest ones they ever built, and it was out in the middle of nowhere in rural Nevada. And that was totally based on cost. And, and that's sort of how warehouses had always worked. How do we have giant boxes somewhere cheap as just a, a waypoint? Today, think about the Amazon warehouses coming up just around Colorado State. So we have one in Loveland. We have in Denver, there's like giant fulfillment centers in the suburbs of Denver that are right across the street from a mall. That's not a cheap place to be, but it's a convenient place to be. And it allows us to position goods really close to where the consumers are so that we can get it to them faster. So one of them, and and this isn't that sophisticated of a trick, is just, well, Put the goods closer. They don't have as far to go. It'll be faster. The other thing that's happened is companies have really moved towards automation. And so what that does is it really speeds up the efficiency you can have inside of a warehouse. We were one of the pilot warehouses for the Kiva robotic system. And what these robots do is, so in a normal warehouse, if you're picking an order, you have maybe a sheet of paper or maybe a, an app on your phone or something. And it says, okay, we need to put these three orders in the box. Go to aisle one. Okay, pick this this item. Now go to aisle five, pick this item. And you can maybe pick one to two items a minute in that old system, which is the picker goes to the goods. With automation, and it's not just an Amazon, but Amazon was certainly the, the pioneer of really doing this on a huge scale. The picker stands in one place. A robot, and, and these robots just uh, tell you a picture in your head that's sort of like an 800-pound Roomba. It's just a big orange 
thing that, that drives around low to the ground and it can pick up shelves. So it can spin around and make itself like a little bit taller. So to pick a shelf up of inventory and bring it right up to you as the picker. And then four more robots come up alongside of you and they have shelves on their heads. And these shelves have maybe three or four boxes each. And so it's just you and five robots. Very chill. And so you and five robots and a laser points over your shoulder and says, pick this. And it points right where you need to pick. You pick it out. There's like a scanner at the grocery store. Boop, put it in the box. Another one right here. Boop, put it in the box. So it's really, really fast. You go from one to two items a minute to 25 items a minute. And so it really speeds up the velocity of orders. And for a place like Amazon or really any e-commerce, velocity is critically important because the way supply chains were designed was for economies of scale. Put the most stuff in a truck, drive it the furthest you can because it gets cheaper on a per mile or per pound basis. With Amazon, it's like people are buying one box of pens and getting that ship. That is not incredibly efficient. And so they have had to really put automation in. You know, all the packaging is automatically sized now. It's like if you ever get anything in the envelopes, you'll notice there's there's not a lot of extra space in there. And that's because things come through an envelope machine and then it's heat sealed immediately once the good is small enough. They've been very scientific about how to increase efficiency, which then allows them to increase the velocity. And, and it's turned into an arms race for everybody where the day after Amazon said, we're going to do next day delivery, Walmart said, okay, we're going to we're gonna do it too. And it's sort of turned into this thing where now it's just an expectation and really a, a critical part of service. People sign up for Prime, not because they want to see the Lord of the Rings show so bad, but because uh, it wasn't that good, uh, but because they want things to get delivered to their house right away. And Amazon knows, even if we're losing money on it, which sometimes they still do, Prime drives the flywheel of the whole company. So having really high levels of service is the number one goal for many of these e-commerce platforms. And now this is very normalized. Was it the pandemic? I, I think people largely point to that as kind of the beginning of this expectation of, I want it now. I want it at my door. I don't want to go out to get it. So the pandemic didn't start this, but it it sped it up. Really, if you look at trends in supply chain, pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, it's almost like the pandemic was like a time machine and it brought us forward way faster than we were prepared to go. And, and that's why you saw the supply chain problems during the pandemic. Like, why don't we have enough trucks? Why don't we have enough boats? Because we didn't think we were going to need this many. If you look at the growth of e-commerce as a percentage of general retail, from about 2010 to 2019, it went from about 6% of retail to about 10% of retail. So basically what that means is of every dollar in 2010, six cents was spent on e-commerce by 2019, 10 cents. In Q2 of 2020, when everyone really locked down, it had jumped up to 16.5%. So the same amount of growth we had done in the 10 years before, we did in four months in the beginning <laughs> of 2020. And so that's why it was like, why are, why are supply chains broken? It's like, well, if you, if you double anything, imagine if you're driving down I-25 and one day there was just 50% more cars, it would be a disaster. And so that's sort of what happened to supply chains. And it is true that it brought a lot of this mainstream. They were already developing all this same day and, and they had same day, but it was sort of a specialty thing in certain markets. We were really concentrating on it, but then it turned into everybody's e-commerce for everything. Plus the other thing that happened during the pandemic that really kind of goosed all these numbers was the only thing we could spend money on was goods. There was no billion dollar Taylor Swift concert in 2020. People couldn't go to a basketball game. You couldn't go to your grandma's house. But we had a trillion dollars of stimulus money, 
and we had to spend that on something. And so all of it moves over to goods. And so that's why you see supply chains just absolutely crash. And all these other companies wanted to take advantage of this trillion dollars. We weren't going to let Amazon have everything. And so everyone gets big into e-commerce. You see a ton of investment in automation, in new warehouses, in trucking fleets. You know, all the trucking fleets built up like crazy. It was basically a gold rush. I mean, I would compare it to like California in 1849. It was like weird having this insane period of growth, six or seven years of growth in the three-month period, a trillion dollars in people's pockets. We can't afford to not get in on this. And so the trends that already existed were catalyzed by the pandemic. How did that continue to impact the supply chain? Because I think we're still, I'm thinking about all the times, there were certain things that were really hard to get. And it did set off this chain reaction, it felt like, for a while, you know, even at post-pandemic, the chain just seemed to be broken. And I think for a lot of people, supply chain isn't something that they really think about until the pandemic hit. And then suddenly everyone was very keenly aware of the supply chain. (laughs) Yeah, that six-week period where we're using toilet paper as currency, that was a real (laughs) odd time. And and you know, because basically what happened is nobody was going to the bathroom at work anymore or at businesses. And the toilet paper supply chain is set up to not have a lot of extra slack. And, And that's really where a lot of the problems came from. And toilet paper is actually a great way to talk about it because... They make the same amount of toilet paper every day. There's no seasonality. It's not like toys. Every, you're pretty much we're using the same amount all day, every day. And so because of that, it's not like there's a lot of extra capacity. Like, oh, well, you know, November, we got to really crank up the toilet paper machine. And so when suddenly we needed all of this extra, or we thought we needed extra toilet paper, which was because now everyone's not going to the bathroom at work, I guess, and it's at home, and, and, and the toilet paper that they make for the home market is different. So it's, it's a little thicker, a little nicer. So what happened is Kimberly Clark, Georgia Pacific, they totally changed their factories. So they went because they weren't making printer paper anymore because nobody needed printer paper. Everything was online. And so all of it comes from the same like pulp. And so everything got transferred to toilet paper. OK, and so that's why about six weeks in, everyone was pretty much fine. And what happened is both consumers and Toilet paper manufacturers over overreacted. So we all bought way too much toilet paper. It took us a year to get through. You know, we would, every time we saw it at Costco, just, oh, just buy it. And so it took us a long time to get through it. And so not a lot of people were buying it. And then we changed all this capacity over. Kimberly Clark and Georgia Pacific, their worst quarter in the history of those companies was Q1 of 2021. So we're still in the pandemic, but basically they'd built all this extra capacity with this expectation that it was going to be like this forever. And everything kind of went back to normal. And so you see these repercussions throughout supply chains. With all the the buying that was happening during the pandemic, as you mentioned that we were suddenly, we had all this money and we're looking to spend it and we were looking to spend it online. You know, this has become a real challenge for physical retailers. They've had to, to really change their game as well. They're offering drive up and same day delivery service in an effort to compete with organizations like Amazon. How has that impacted their logistics? A lot of them have had to move to something called the omni-channel. And omni-channel is when you sort of have a seamless experience between online, mobile ordering, in-person, pickup, delivery to your house, all of that kind of stuff. And, And that makes it difficult to track. I remember looking around the holidays of 2020. My daughter was eight at the time, and she was obsessed with Baby Yoda from The Mandalorian Show. And I was looking at all these targets, and... Online, it would say, we have three in inventory in, in Longmont. And I remember driving down to Longmont. This is like 
December 23rd. <laughs> and I could still see on my phone, it said, oh, you have three in the store, but there wasn't any there. And I was talking to one of the folks there, this poor kid who probably had a million questions like this this day. And he said, well, you know, the system that sells them online, because Target was shipping just out of the back of their stores as their warehouses, because Targets are close to people's houses, so next day delivery is possible. He said, uh, that system doesn't really talk to the system in the store. It's kind of two different things. And that was early enough in the pandemic, they hadn't figured out how to make that all one thing. A lot of companies had been approaching it, especially traditional brick and mortar retailers, as, okay, we have Walmart, and then we have Walmart.com. And those are sort of two different siloed entities. And the challenge of the pandemic for brick and mortar retailers was, how do we take what we're already good at, the in-person, and combine it with this thing that's kind of been like a hobby for us, sort of experimental? You know, Walmart, Target, all these places were sort of bringing their online along slowly because they thought, well, we're in the end, we're brick and mortar. And now suddenly when this brick and mortar doesn't work anymore because of the pandemic, they really had to boost up all of the online stuff. Moving forward, it's really interesting because some of them have pulled back a little bit. Target is not shipping out of the back of the stores that much anymore. If you go down to Denver right now, folks who live in Colorado will know where the big Wonder Bread factory is right off I-25. Right behind that is a brand new fulfillment center for Target. And that's where their online orders will be coming from now in Colorado. And so it, it's funny, everyone kind of tried to do this habit both ways. And partly that was because the pandemic was an emergency. And now we're actually seeing more of the, let's go to the traditional model. Let's like let's actually have, if we're going to do online, let's really do it with a big fulfillment center, a lot of robotics, a lot of technology, and sort of emulate what Amazon is doing. You know, Target and Walmart, I think, thought we can just ship this out of the back of our stores because we're Target and Walmart. Our stores are in great locations, like close to where people live, but it's really hard to do both at the same time. And so having those fulfillment centers, I think, really changed it for them. You know, people get worried, I think, will everything eventually be online? And really, really what we're seeing is it sort of seems like we're doing an online plus one or an online plus two or three. So think about like books. Books were one of the first things to get killed off by online because remember Amazon started as a bookstore, which is hilarious now that it was like a, <laughs> a library. And so there's basically one big book chain left, Barnes & Noble. Walden is gone. All of the other bookstores that used to be in the mall, all, all those bookstores are gone. But you still need a bookstore. There still needs to be a, a place where it's like, hey, my kid has to do a book report. It's eight o'clock at night. My daughter's in a middle school now, so I'm familiar with this. We got to get a book. Let's just go to the Barnes & Noble. And so you're seeing a lot of one to two stores kind of in each area stick around. Now, sometimes some of those shift over, like Bed Bath & Beyond is gone. People go to Target to get towels or you know, whatever. And so there will always be a need for brick and mortar. That will never go away because... It's just easy and convenient. And there is limits to online. And we saw what some of those limits are. You know, the other thing with online is it's kind of come time for some of them to show real profit. You know, forever online was with e-commerce, all we care about is growth and we don't have to show profit and investors were totally fine with that. Well, now that the rate of growth has slowed down, because you know we said it was 16.5% during Q2 of 2020, now it's about 15%, and, and it's sort of stabilizing and kind of returned as like a regression to the mean. We're kind of back on the trend line. And so now we'll continue to see some slow growth, but we've built up more capacity than we need for the levels we're at now. And so now a lot of investors are sort of thinking, well, can you show some return? Can you show some profit? And so you won't just see this rampant 
craziness. We're, we're fine losing money as long as we grow because kind of everybody knows about e-commerce now. It's not like 10 years ago when people's aunts didn't know how to go on Amazon and, and buy something. Everybody learned how to do it. Grandma's using click lists. You know, I mean, every, everyone knows how to do stuff now. And so I think that will be a big factor going forward as we sort of balance out this e-commerce to brick and mortar and, and figure out where equilibrium is. Now, I want to talk a little bit about one of the unintended consequences of the the fast delivery model is that we also have a lot more uh, buyer's regret. I was reading that the, the total value of returned goods in the U.S. now exceeds our defense budget. What kind of ripple effect is that going to have? Yeah, National Retail Federation, I think it was $814 billion of, of returns last year, Ooh. which is... Just to put that in context, is about the GDP of Turkey, which is a G20 country. So it's it's a lot. And so it's it's become a, a culture of returns, and there's no putting that toothpaste back in the tube. I have had conversations with large companies about how do we reduce returns. It's like, well, you reduce sales. That's how you do it. Especially online, you know, if you look at something like apparel, the average rate of return for apparel bought in a brick and mortar store is about 9%. E-commerce is 30 so it's triple. And and sort of between two to three times return rate for e-commerce is, is a pretty good number. For some stuff, like electronics, maybe it's like 1.5. But generally, it is higher for e-commerce. You know, I had a lady in one of my classes, and we were talking about, you know, who does a lot of returns? And she said, well, my brother is getting married over the winter break, and so I bought nine dresses. And I'm going to try them all on, and I'll keep one, and I'm going to send the other eight back. And that is like a totally normal regular approach that people take because you can't try it on if it's online. I mean, they try to do the thing where it's like, yeah, send your echo all your dimensions and we'll, you know, transpose it over your body. And that didn't, you know, people didn't like that. It's much easier to just do returns. And so returns is a gigantic part of the economy. We've been tracking something called the secondary market ever since 2008. Started this as an undergrad when I was, I was a research assistant. And Basically, what we look at is the value of all the goods that move through secondary channels, salvage dealers, online auctions, dollar stores, pawn shops, value retailers. A value retailer would be like Nordstrom Rack, outlet malls. It was $715 billion last year, which is 3% of GDP. So this gigantic piece of GDP is just the goods being resold through these secondary channels. And so that does have a big impact because it's expensive, but there's a lot of good to it, actually. You know, people tend to focus on, oh, we have to send a truck to go pick it up. But resold goods, whether they're excess inventory or returns, go back into the system. And every system has drains. And these drains are really important to certain parts of the economy. There's a lot of little towns. Like I, I grew up in Nevada. And in Nevada, there's basically two cities. There's Reno and Las Vegas. And then a bunch of little places in between. And there's a lot of little towns that they're not big enough for a Walmart. But they have a family dollar. And this family dollar or Dollar Tree or something, probably a lot of their goods are secondary market goods. So, oh, here's some lunch boxes for a movie that didn't do as well as we thought it would. Target didn't sell them, but now we have them. Or here's some canned goods or some shoes or school supplies. And so it actually, a lot of that $715 billion does kind of a social service because it moves to retail deserts and places that Okay, that's not our first choice to sell these lunch boxes in Hawthorne, Nevada. But for the people who live in Hawthorne, Nevada, who are there because there's a military base, basically, it's great. Like, oh, now we can get the lunch boxes from the new Spider-Man movie or whatever. They weren't going to come out here otherwise. And so there's a social good to it. The other thing is all $715 billion of those products would have otherwise ended up in a landfill. And so from a social and environmental sustainability piece, 
returns are actually not the worst thing in the world. You know, we tend to focus on, you see that $800 billion number that you mentioned, like, oh, we're so wasteful. We're the bad guys in the Hunger Games. And maybe there's some <laughs> truth to that. I don't know. But all of that recycled stuff usually ends up in a pretty good place. You know, the last choice is landfill. Companies hate to throw things away because it costs money to throw things away. And it's not great for your reputation. We have gotten such robust reduce, reuse, recycle, remanufacture programs in the U.S. now. And a lot of it has actually been fueled by these rates of returns. And in terms of companies going to someone and saying, hey, we'd, we'd like returns to, to go away, good luck. Good luck getting Gen Z, who has never not known a world where they could pull out their phone and order something on Amazon and then return it instantly and for free if they don't want it. Good luck getting them to think, oh, yeah, maybe I don't want returns. It's baked into the cake now. There's no getting around it. And so for now, for companies, it's how do we maximize the return we can get from this and turn returns from something where it's a, a loss center to a profit center. And that profit tends to do, as a byproduct, some social and environmental good. Zach Rogers is an associate professor of operations and supply chain management at Colorado State University's College of Business. I'm your host, Stacey Nick, and you're listening to CSU's The Audit.